The Pasco County Democratic Executive Committee is providing this podcast as a public service in order to let you know of issues which have been identified as important for voters to know and also to provide a forum for candidates for public office. The podcasts are open to anyone interested in knowing more about the important issues of the day. The views expressed by the host and and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view of the Pasco Democratic Executive Committee. In the case of today's podcast on guns in America, the views expressed are those of the host and others whose views have been publicly expressed and are readily available on the internet. I have decided to do a podcast or two on guns in America, primarily because, as all of you experience um, each week, as I do, uh, more headlines, uh, Memorial Day weekend headlines, 16 killed over eight different shootings. That sort of thing is happening so much that we all have become not inured to it, but we certainly know that uh, it hurts an awful lot of people, the survivors and so forth, uh, and it's a part of our culture that we want to do something about. Um, I'm going to talk about my background in guns. I'm going to talk about uh, Heather Cox Richardson, who is a marvelous um, critic and uh, is one that you should read on a regular basis. And also a couple other things, uh, the geography of gun violence. There are a couple of places in the U.S. right now that every day are studying where murders and killings take place and try to come up with some ideas as to why. Uh, one thing to say right off the bat is that you know more than half of the killings that occur because of guns are from suicide. At any rate, I'm going to go back to what my background is. I grew up in northern New York State. And um, at the age of 10 through 17, I lived in a small town called Sandy Creek. We were about two miles outside of town. We had a small 33-acre farm, not, not anything compared to the farms where most were two, three, four, five hundred acres. It had cows and dairy land and so forth. For me, uh, at around 11 or 12 years old, with kids in the neighborhood, uh, we all had access to guns. In my case, it was only a, a, a Stevens single-shot 22 uh, and an old 12-gauge shotgun and actually had one barrel that was not usable. It was cracked. Uh, but often, if they be 13, 14 years of age, a bunch of us would get together, we'd go hunting. Always wanted to go deer hunting. We never saw any overall at that time. Um, and during that period of time, though, about the same age of 15 or 16, I recall a couple of things happening. Number one, uh, there was a kid in our class named Harold Wilson, and he was, like us, uh, in the weekend, he was out hunting, <clears throat> and he was with a, a group of uh, friends, and he was in a, on stand in a bush, and he was moving around a bit, and then somebody thought that must be a deer. They shot and killed him. And then about six months later, another thing that happened was that we had a kid in our class who, uh, age 15, he was in the class below me, and nobody knew that much about him. He was kind of a quiet person. But uh, we came to school on a Monday, and he had killed himself with suicide at the age of 15. And those things kind of worked on me at the age of 16 or so. And uh, one day I was out hunting. I didn't find anything. And finally saw a chipmunk. Well, I said, okay, I'll kill a chipmunk. So I shot at the chipmunk, but I missed the chipmunk because it was a slight branch, a twig in the way. It deflected the bullet just enough, so what it did was it actually took the eye out of the chipmunk. And I remember looking at that, and it was rubbing his eye, and, and I remember sitting back and saying, 
why did I just do that? And I think that was the last time I had anything to do with um, uh, guns and so forth. And uh, this now is from Heather Cox Richardson, again, a, a columnist. I think if you see her anywhere, she's readily available on the Internet. Just type in her name and you can see all the recent columns. Heather Cox Richardson. And this is from May 6, uh, a few weeks ago. For years now, after one massacre or another, I've written some version of the same article explaining that the nation's current gun free-for-all is not traditional, but rather as a symptom of the takeover of our nation by a radical extremist minority. The idea that massacres are the price of freedom, as right-wing personality Bill O'Reilly said in 2017, after the Mandalay Bay Rest Massacre in Las Vegas, in which a gunman killed 60 people and wounded 411 others. It's new. It's about politics. It's not our history. The Second Amendment to the Constitution, on which modern-day arguments for widespread gun ownership rest, is one simple sentence. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, there's a lot, uh, not a lot going on about what the uh, framers meant, although in their day, to bear arms meant to be part of an organized militia. As the Supreme Court vote wrote in 1840, a man in the pursuit of deer, elk, and buffaloes might carry his rifle every day for 40 years, and yet it would never be said of him that he had borne arms, much less could it be said that a private citizen bears arms because he has a dirk or pistol concealed under his clothes or a spear and a cane. Today's insistence that the Second Amendment gives individuals a broad right to own guns comes from two places. One is the establishment of the National Rifle Association in New York in 1871, in part to improve the marksmanship skills of American citizens who might be called on to fight in another war, and in part to promote in America the British sport of elite shooting, complete with hefty cash prizes and newly organized tournaments. Just a decade after the Civil War, veterans jumped at the chance to hone their former skills. Rifle clubs sprang up across the nation. By the 1920s, rifle shooting was a popular American sport. Riflemen competed in the Olympics, in colleges, and in local, state, and national tournaments organized by the NRA. Being a good marksman was a source of pride mentioned in public biographies like being a good golfer. In 1925, when the secretary of the NRA apparently took money from ammunition and arms manufacturers, the organization tossed him out and sued him. NRA officers insisted on the right of citizens to own rifles and handguns, but worked hard to distinguish between law-abiding citizens who should have access to guns for hunting and target shooting and protection, and criminals and mentally ill people who should not. In 1931, amid fears of bootlegger gangs, the NRA backed federal legislation to limit concealed weapons, prevent possession by criminals, the mentally ill, and children, and to require all dealers to be licensed and to require background checks before delivery. It backed the 1934 National Firearms Act and parts of the 1968 Gun Control Act designed to stop what seemed to be America's hurdle toward violence in that turbulent decade. But in the mid-1970s, a faction of the NRA forced the organization away from sports and toward opposing gun control. It formed a political action committee, 
PAC in 1975, and two years later, it elected organization president who abandoned sporting culture and focused instead on gun rights. This was the second thing that led us to where we are today. Leaders of the NRA embraced the politics of movement conservatism, the political movement that rose to combat the business regulations and social welfare programs that both Democrats and Republicans embraced after World War II. Movement conservatives embraced the myth of the American cowboy as a white man standing against the socialism of the federal government as it sought to level the economic playing field between black Americans and their white neighbors. Leaders like Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater personified the American cowboy with his cowboy hat in opposition to government regulation, while television westerns showed good guys putting down bad guys without the interference of the government. In 1972, the Republican platform had called for gun control to restrict the sale of cheap handguns. But in 1975, as he geared up to challenge President Gerald R. Ford for the 1976 presidential nomination, movement conservative hero Ronald Reagan took a stand against gun control. In 1980, the Republican platform opposed the federal registration of firearms, and the NRA endorsed a presidential candidate, Reagan, for the first time. When President Reagan took office, a new American era dominated by movement conservatives began, and the power of the NRA over American politics grew. In 1981, a gunman trying to kill Reagan shot and paralyzed his press secretary, James Brady, and wounded Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy and police officer Thomas Delante. After the shooting, then-Representative Charles Schumer, Democrat of New York, introduced legislation that became known as the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, or the Brady Bill, to require background checks before gun purchases. Reagan, who was a member of the NRA, endorsed the bill, but the NRA spent millions of dollars to defeat it. After the Brady Bill passed in 1993, the NRA paid for lawsuits in nine states to strike it down. Until 1959, every single legal article in the Second Amendment concluded it was not intended to guarantee individuals the right to own a gun. But in the 1970s, legal scholars funded by the NRA had begun to argue that the Second Amendment did just exactly that. In 1997, when the Brady Bill cases came before the Supreme Court as Prince versus United States, the Supreme Court declared parts of the measure unconstitutional. Now, a player in national politics, the NRA was awash in money from gun and ammunition manufacturers. By 2000, it was one of the three most powerful lobbies in Washington. It spent more than $40 million in the 2008 election. And that year, the Supreme Court decision of District versus Columbia versus Heller struck down gun regulations and declared that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to keep and bear arms. Increasingly, NRA money-backed Republican candidates, and in 2012, the NRA spent $9 million in the presidential election, and in 2014, it spent $13 million. Then in 2016, it spent over $50 million on Republican candidates, including more than $30 million on Trump's efforts to win the White House. This money was vital to Trump, since many other Republican super PACs refused to back him. The NRA spent more money on Trump than any other outside group, including the leading Trump super PAC, which spent $20.3 million. The unfettered right to own and carry weapons has become to symbolize the Republican Party's ideology of individual liberty. Lawmakers and activists have not been able to overcome Republican insistence on gun rights despite the mass shootings that have risen since their new emphasis on guns.
I don't know where we're going to go here in our future, but I think what Heather Cox Richardson has done is to, um, in a very simple way, show us where we how, where we have come from and where we are at this point with guns in America. Now, the next article I'm going to be talking about is called The Surprising Geography of Gun Violence. A uh, person's name is Colin Woodward. He's a political magazine contributing writer and uh, director of the Nation uh, Head Lab at Sav Regina University's Pell Center, which is in uh, Rhode Island. And this is a, a group that every day gets statistics going in terms of killings and murders in the United States in terms of, of the guns and uh, their part in those things. Um, he's author, he's written six books, and uh, including one, uh, History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. And this is what we were going to talk about in this particular aspect of the program. Um, listen to the Southern right talk about violence in America, and you think that New York City was as dangerous as Baknuk and Ukraine's Eastern Front. In October, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis proclaimed crime in New York City was out of control and blamed it on George Soros. Another Sunshine State political, former President Donald Trump, offered his native city up as a Democrat-run dystopia, one of those places where the middle class used to flock to live in the American dream, which are now war zones, literal war zones, he said. In May 2022, hours after 19 children were murdered at uh, Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, Rebecca and George Greg Abbott swatted back suggestions that would save lives by implementing tougher gun laws by proclaiming Chicago and L.A. New York disproved that thesis. Well, in reality, and this is what the statistics prove, the region the Big Apple comprises most of is far and away the safest part of the U.S. mainland when it comes to gun violence. While the regions Florida and Texas belong to have uh, their per capita firearm death rates, homicides and suicides, three to four times higher than New York. On a regional basis, it's the southern swath of the country in cities and rural areas alike where the rate of deadly gun violence is most acute. Regions where Republicans have dominated state governments for decades. If you grew up in the coal mining region of eastern Pennsylvania, your chance of dying of a gunshot is about half that if you grew up in the coal fields of West Virginia, 300 miles to the southwest. Someone living in the most rural counties of South Carolina is more than three times as likely to be killed by gunshot than someone living in the equally rural counties of New York's Adirondacks or the impoverished rural counties facing Mexico across the lower reaches of the Rio Grande. The reasons for these disparities go beyond modern policy differences and extend back to events that predate not only the American party system, but the advent of shotguns, revolvers, ammunition, cartridges, breech-loaded rifles, and the American public itself. The geography of gun violence and public and elite ideas about how it should be addressed is the result of differences at once regional, cultural, and historical. Once you understand how the country was colonized and by whom, a number of insights into the problem are revealed. And this is why I want to talk about this article today and read most of it to you, because it brought up something I'd never thought about and, uh, uh, again, explains where we are today. To do so, you need to more accurately delineate America's regional cultures. 
Forget the U.S. Census divisions, which arbitrarily divide the country into a northeast, midwest, south, and west, using often meaningless state boundaries and a willful ignorance of history. The reason the U.S. has strong regional differences because our swath of the American North American continent was settled by rival colonial projects and very little in common, often despise one another and spread without regard for today's state boundaries. Those colonial projects, Puritan-controlled New England, the Dutch-settled area around what is now New York City, the Quaker-founded Delaware Valley, the Scots-Irish-led upland backcountry of the Appalachians, the West Indies-style slave society in the Deep South, the Spanish project in the Southwest, and so on, had different ethnographic, religious, economic, and ideological characteristics. They were rivals and sometimes enemies, with even the British ones lining up on opposite sides of conflicts like the English Civil War in the 1640s. They settled much of the eastern half and southwestern third of what is now the U.S. in mutually exclusive sediment lands bands before a significant third-party migration picked up steam in the 1840s. In the process, they laid down the institutions, symbols, and cultural norms and ideas about freedom, honor, and violence that later arrivals would encounter and to a large assimilate into. Some states lie entirely or almost entirely within one of these regional cultures. Others are split between them, propelling constant and profound disagreements on policies and politics alike in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, California, Oregon. Places you might not think have much in common, southwestern Pennsylvania and the Texas Hill Country, for instance, are actually at the beginning and end of well-documented settlement streams. In their case, one dominated by generations of Scots-Irish and lowland Scots settlers moving to the early 18th century Pennsylvania frontier, and later down the Great Wagon Road to settle the upland parts of Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, and Tennessee, and then on to the Ozarks, north and central Texas, and southern Oklahoma. Similar colonization movements linked Maine and Minnesota, Charleston and Houston, Pennsylvania Dutch country, and central Iowa. Uh, we're going to end it there today because there's a lot more to say on this particular one, and then we've been talking about the data sources and gun violence archive that's uh, being uh, compiled in these two of these various places that are studying gun violence in America. So we'll end it there today and uh, talk tomorrow. And remember, what I'm not trying to do here is to persuade you one way or the other. I'm only going to try to present what I've been able to find out about where we are with guns and how we got there. See you next time. Um, event that occurred to my family. I, I would not have wanted that 
to happen to anyone. Right. But I do know that um, we were chosen for a reason. Right. Well, I thank you for your time. Well, let's hope that um, if not now, then very much close in the near future, that we do get the story of Rosewood and other situations uh, taught in our uh, history classes in Florida. Uh, it's, it's, let's not let anything happen to that story because it has to be told and understood. Thank you, Ebony, for your time, um, and um, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much for the interest in the story. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.